This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. One, two, three, four. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Absolutely bonkers, crazy busy week, crazy busy day, crazy busy times. Having my wife out of town adds just a whole new layer of stress and drama with animals and domestic things and whatnot. I I miss her terribly, but I also miss her terribly um, in terms of just uh, having a second body around, which is, um, oh, that's a good place to start. We talked about, uh, I talked with Brad Wilcox about marriage, got a lot of interesting pushback responses from people. I really like Brad's work. Um, he, he doesn't crack a lot of jokes, but he's a very serious guy and he's a very smart guy. And he knows a lot of things. You know, I asked him, you know, my basic point about very familiar to a lot of you, how, you know, I think neoconservatism is not really understood. I mean, these days it's amazing how it's coming back in a vengeance, the sort of use of it as a stand-in for bad people from the sort of crazy online right people, you know, calling Nikki Haley a neocon, and that's supposed to end some sort of argument. One of these days I'll get back to doing that big sort of guy on the hill of defending what neoconservatism is and isn't. But anyway, my, my basic point, which I offered in the podcast was just simply in the conversation with Brad was that the, the original people to be called neocons um, in a in a widespread way there's a huge debate I shouldn't say a huge debate there's a tiny and highly nerdy debate about who coined the term because it would come up every now and then in some random paragraph by somebody or other I think lots of people claim they said it before Michael Harrington but Michael Harrington who was the famous socialist writer um is the guy widely credited with coining it. And even if he didn't coin it, it was his usage of it that popularized it. He was using it to describe sort of traitors um, from his side, broad, very broadly speaking, who had come to the realization that the great society and sort of 60s liberalism generally had gone too far. And so the original neocons, everyone from Irving Kristol, famously called the godfather of neoconservatism, but also, you know, Nat Glazer, who never really became an actual conservative, never became a Republican, certainly. Um, Daniel Bell, James Q. Wilson, who was arguably one of the most important social scientists of the 20th century. Ed Banfield, who we talked about before. And anyway, what these guys talked about, sorry, Steve is texting me, and um, which he does often. Where was it? Oh, so anyway, these guys, you know, they, they found that like, you know, sort of do-goodery reforms, well-intentioned reforms had unintended consequences, which is like one of the most fundamental conservative, small c conservative insights about utopianism or idealism in politics. You know, Nat Glazer, 
you know, had this great observation about how liberalism had decided that it didn't want to do the things it was good at in terms of like government policy um, because it wanted to do sort of grandiose things. And so it turned its back on the things that we know government is necessary for, like fighting crime, maintaining public order, you know, provisioning for, you know, even you know, things like healthcare. And instead it just, it, it got its, its eyes got bigger than its stomach. And so one of the things I always like about neoconservatism is that it is actually sort of a ratification or a reconfirmation uh, of the original neoconservatism. You know, some really basic sort of conservative insights about culture, about politics. And Brad's work on marriage is one of these things, uh, is, is an example of that in the, the current time. Now, I don't think he was ever a liberal but um, or a progressive or whatever, but this sort of rediscovery of sort of meat and potatoes, public policy and cultural policy and that kind of thing is really, really important, right? It's, it's what, you know, Tom Wolfe would call the great relearning that we need to sort of realize that, and it's a very Hayekian point, that certain customs, norms, traditions, institutions that developed over a long period of time, they developed over a long period of time precisely because they served a real need. They fixed real problems. Marriage is one of these institutions where I don't like, you know, it's, it's very disenchanting to talk about it in terms of like, uh, you know, social policy outcomes and success at school and all of these kinds of things. But sometimes it's necessary when people have sort of decided to throw out an institution without, you know, very Chesterton's fence kind of point, right? It's like there are a huge number of people look at marriage like the like Chesterton's fence. They don't know why it's there, so they assume there's no good reason for it. And it turns out there's a really good reason for it. You know, we went through a similar period um, like this with the defund the police stuff where people became kind of blind to the benefits of having police. And they only focused on the downsides. And there are real downsides, you know. I mean, there are real downsides from all sorts of perspectives, not just the racial one. But lots of necessary things have downsides, you know. And it turns out that when you go whole hog in a certain direction where you think that, you know, crime isn't a serious consideration or inflation. I mean, we can go down a long list. The jungle grows back. Things bite back. Um, society, you know, events, culture um, mistakes become more and more evident. I'm not for getting rid of divorce laws or any of that kind of stuff, but in a culture where you have all sorts of people at the commanding heights, you know, either poo-pooing marriage. I mean, there's this huge, you know, ridiculous fad uh, in journalism, particularly like the New York Times about polyamory, you know, basically about dating while married. You know, and there's that piece that we talked about in the Wall Street Journal, which I really highly recommend people read because it's very funny. Um, Sarah and I wanted to do a whole podcast on it about uh, stay-at-home girlfriends who provide all of the, we'll euphemize it, services of a newlywed wife without any of the protections for said wife. And you get all these horror stories about these women who were basically playing, you know, playing house or doing uh, pretending to be kind of trad wife things without being wives on their Instagram, you know, a lot of self-care during the day and then making a meal for their man when he comes home. And then when the man gets bored with them, they've acquired no property. 
they have no stake in his income. They're several years older and um, have to start. Your grandmother could have told you that's a bad idea, right? I mean, marry the cow, you know, don't if you get the milk for free thing. And so I think it's a shame that social scientists have to sort of flood in to sort of back this kind of stuff back up this old folk wisdom, but where the folk wisdom was good. And there's a lot of bad folk wisdom, right? There were a lot of bad institutions and traditions that were often propped up by the state um, that it's very good they went away. But that doesn't mean all of them were bad or wholly bad. And so I just, I'm constantly interested in these kinds of examples where people realize that idealism without evidence without data, without, you know, thinking through the consequences is often, often leads to disaster, maybe not cosmic existential disaster, but personal disaster or cultural, you know, maybe not disaster, but problems. And so I find the whole thing very useful. I find, you know, people, it's marriage is one of those topics though, that people, people have very strong opinions based upon their parents based upon their existing marriages, based upon their divorces, based upon how they've raised their kids. And there is a tendency for people to universalize from their particular experience. And I think this is just something that, you know, you need to watch out against. Like, I think religion is a very, plays a very important role in society. I think religion is, you know, obviously there are Bad things have happened with religion. We don't have to get into the, you know, <laughs> the Hundred Years' War or anything like that or the Inquisition. But religion plays a sort of a vital role for individuals and societies in all sorts of ways. And you can replace religion with certain things and have be very successful for for an individual community and, indiv you know, a, a specific couple or person without that being proof that religion needs to go for everybody or that religion is something to be disparaged and discouraged. And, you know, so similarly, like, you know, I think it is just generally true that as a, as a, and as a very general proposition, divorce is bad for kids, but that doesn't mean that every couple with kids that's in a terrible marriage shouldn't get divorced. Like we're all experts on our own lives to a certain extent. The question is, what incentives, what cultural signals, what, you know, what penalties do we put around these institutions to encourage the, the general truth of the matter while allowing for exceptions? And that's hard, you know? And so, you know, it's complicated, but, you know, there's a lot of really depressing social science data about, you know, even couples who get remarried about abuse of kids by stepfathers, like you are just wildly more likely to be abused by a stepfather than a biological father, sexually, physically, whatever. I am not against, you know, people getting remarried and having stepchildren. That's not the point. The point is just to sort of illuminate this point. And, you know, some, there's a lot of evolutionary psychology explanations for it, um, but it's just simply true. Similarly, like, there's just a lot of evidence that, you know, parents of their biological children do a better job at the statistical aggregate level than parents of adopted kids. I am a thousand percent in favor of adoption. And there are, I know, I know personally countless, or I've met countless, I've known quite a few people who were adopted who became wonderful people and had wonderful parents. 
but you can just, you know, be, you can be aware of these things at a statistical level while also acknowledging that it's not a universal truth in every regard. I, so I got a lot of blowback from people who, you know, were arguing from their particular experiences and making universal statements about, you know, what's good for marriage, what's not good for marriage and all that kind of what's good for child rearing, rearing and all of that. And all it does to me proves to me is that it's complicated and there are exceptions to rules, and these are not ironclad things. These are not iron laws, but that doesn't mean, you know, it's like I've talked on here a bunch about the success sequence, you know, this idea that you get at least a high school degree, preferably a college degree, before you get married, you get married before you have kids, and if you do that, the odds of your kid uh, ending up in poverty are just wildly reduced, but I guarantee you there are examples. It's the law, you know, it's like the law of large numbers. There are plenty of examples where the success sequence failed, you know, and to a certain extent it failed with my brother, you know, who died because, and he was raised by two loving parents and all of that, but he got too involved in drugs and whatnot. And, you know, that's, you know, it's complicated. And like when people talk about drug legalization, I often bring this up as like one of my problems with the people who talk about which I think is full of idealistic stuff, idealistic assumptions. When people talk about drug legalization, I, I think there are a lot of good arguments for drug legalization. National Review was against the drug war my entire time I was there. I remember I once asked Rich Lowry if NR or William F. Buckley would be against, would still be against the drug war if they thought the drug war could work. And he was like, that's a tough Controfactual, right? Because it's, it works from the assumption that the drug war isn't working, and so therefore the drug war should go. But what if it could work? You know, I mean, there are a lot of people who make the argument that prohibition was very successful in terms of improving public health, improving life expectancy, reducing all sorts of bad social pathologies. But the cost benefit analysis was such that you know, both politically and culturally, and 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 otherwise, it's like, yeah, this is just. It's not worth the effort. The juice is not worth the squeeze or whatever that dumb phrase is. So I have a lot of sympathy for people who talk about drug legalization because I think there are good arguments there. What I don't have a lot of patience with is there's a certain breed of libertarian, not all libertarians, by but, but not by a long shot, but there's a certain breed of libertarian who just will not acknowledge in any serious way the downsides of legalizing heroin or fentanyl or any of these kinds of things. And there would be obvious downsides, you know, like if you made heroin an over-the-counter non-prescription drug, lots of people would become addicted to heroin. And, you know, the arguments that it would be that the quality would be better and it would be affordable and so people could maintain their addiction their whole lives Okay, well, that's an argument, but like, <laughs> I don't see that as an unalloyed good. Um, you know, drug addiction is a form of chemical slavery. And, um, and so is alcoholism. You know, I mean, I, I concede all of that. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is that there are trade-offs. And the, the role of neoconservatism in a lot of ways, the first generation of it with the public interest and, and all that crowd, was to reintroduce the concept of trade-offs into a big slice of American policymaking. Um, if, if you know what the trade-offs are going into a decision and you still make the decision, that's one thing. But if you don't know what they are, if you don't know why Chesterton's fence was built in the first place, 
um, almost all of your decisions are going to be ill-informed going forward. And anyway, that's the thing I thought was that I've been thinking about a lot about that, that conversation. Moving on. If I sound harried, it's only because I'm harried. Um, all right, let's take a break for a second and talk about dogs. You know, this is not an ad. I wasn't introducing an ad. You know, there's this report, I think it was today, that Biden's dog had bit Secret Service personnel 24 times, I think the number was. And so the dog is finally being removed from the White House. At least that's my understanding of it. I make a lot of jokes about how the dog did nothing wrong, you know, on Twitter, you know, and that kind of thing where some dog tears apart a couch and I'm like, you can't prove the dog did anything wrong, that kind of thing. And I, I generally come from that kind of perspective. Dogs will be dogs. And even here, I kind of feel a little bit that way. If you have a dog that is routinely biting people, the blame for that is in the owner, right? I mean, yes, obviously some dogs are very ill-bred. Um, they have certain issues and all that kind of stuff. But I don't think that's what these beautiful German shepherds that the Bidens, you know, got. I'm sure they paid top dollar for them from a good breeder. I suspect that that's not the issue. I, th I suspect the issue is, is that they didn't put in the time and the effort to train and socialize um, these dogs properly. You know, if you're in a high stress environment and you're never actually, and the dog doesn't even know who its owner is to a certain extent because, you know, Biden's not walking that dog. I doubt Jill Biden is walking the dog that much. And so you're handing it off to sort of strangers all the time. It's going to develop all sorts of issues if it's not getting exercise, particularly for a dog like a German Shepherd. And so like, I just, you know, I just think it's irresponsible as a dog owner, you know, and a dogophile to put a dog in a situation where it's more of a ornament than an actual animal companion. I don't like calling dogs children or anything like that, but um, dogs take work and commitment. Anyway, I just want to get that out there because also it was a good opportunity to segue to something that happened to me. Obviously, I'll probably put this in the canine update in the G file, but um, so I told you my wife's out of town and I've got business meetings and phone calls and podcasts and deadlines at the yin yang and CNN is using me a lot more and... And so I'm just being pulled a bunch of different directions. And also I've been digging out from vacation. I've decided that, you know, the amount of work that accumulates while you're on vacation completely exhausts any relaxation or recharging you got while on vacation. But anyway, the other day I was uh, in my kitchen. I have this big floppy comfy, comfy chair in our kitchen. We have a really big kitchen. That's why we bought the house. And um You've probably seen some of the videos if you follow me on Twitter. And um, and the dogs are barking, Zoe and Pippa, and they're barking. And I go to the front door and I don't see anybody. Or I do see somebody walking by, whatever. They bark when people walk by or when people drop off Amazon things or whatever. Usually it's at the front door. And then I uh, realize that Zoe's barking a lot at the back door, the mudroom door, which, again, if you've seen these videos, that's where the welcoming committee usually meets me. We come in through the back usually. And so I go and I get up and I look out the window of the, of the mudroom door and I see some workmen in the driveway that I share with our neighbors. And I was like, oh, he's barking at the workmen, whatever. And so I, I go back and I dig around on my computer and then it comes time for the midday walk. And it was, that's right, it was Monday, President's Day, Kirsten wasn't working, so I'm taking him out. I open the door and I see that this garbage bag that I had left on the landing was completely torn apart. 
Now that happens sometimes if we, I forget at night, raccoons will come and do that. But this was broad daylight. It was very unusual. I figured maybe it was crows. Crows are the kind of thing that Zoe would definitely, and Pippa would definitely bark at. They hate crows. Vile, vile sky rats as far as they're concerned. So my crap, okay. I can't clean this up with these you know, dogs are, my dogs are now going through the garbage because it's all strewn all over the place. So I got to get them in the car. So I get them down the steps, but I leave the mudroom door open and I put them in, you know, our dog car, the Honda Element, or I start to, right? I'm starting to do that. I didn't get them in yet. And, and so Zoe gets in, she jumps in, gets in the driver's seat. And then I look down to get Pippa to put her in. And I look at her and I'm looking at her and I'm like, I kind of thought I was having a stroke or something. I was got kind of dizzy, kind of weird. Like, you know, when you see something that just doesn't fit, but it, it looks like it fits. So I'm looking down to, to tell Pippa to jump in. And I say, Pippa, jump in. And I look down and it's a different spaniel. It's not my dog. <laughs> it's some random spaniel I've never seen before. And he's like, hey, what's going on? Yeah, I'll go, I'll go to the park with you guys. That sounds fun. And I'm like, where's my spaniel? And I look over and span my spaniel is hiding from this stranger spaniel. And then Zoe realizes that there is an interloper inside the perimeter trying to get in our car. And so she starts going crazy. And I asked these workmen whose dog this is. And he's, they're like, you know, to Hispanic guys, they're like, what are you talking about? You came out of your house with these dogs. And like, I don't know, that's your dog. And the massive confusion. And so I, at this point, Zoe is trying to jump out the window to deal, because the window to the car is open to get at this, this Spaniel. And so I have to, with sort of one foot trying to hold on to this strange Spaniel, get in the car, turn on the engine so that I can close the window and lock the dingo inside. Meanwhile, the door to the mudroom is still open and Gracie has come out to supervise and she's watching things. And Chester, the neighborhood bully cat that loves to, to intimidate Gracie is now showing up saying, what's all the hubbub? I get Pippa somehow and I shove her in the car and I close the car up and I look at this dog's collar and his name is Monty. And he's a doll. He's just a really wonderful dog. And fortunately, on his collar, there is a phone number for the owner. So I call the owner. <laughs> meanwhile, Monty's rolled over on his back and is just demanding belly rubs at this point. He's a real sweetheart. I call the owner, and the owner is like, oh, my gosh. I didn't even know the kids put the dog outside. I'm so sorry. I'll send one of them to get you. And I tried to explain to her, like, I don't mean to rush you, but, like, I got these dogs and like, I, I couldn't even explain the open door with the garbage and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, she comes running up. Um, she was a neighbor from the street behind ours. And apparently Monty had figured out a hole in their Invisa fence coverage and just came to come check things out. And he really wanted to come with me to the park. And if I thought Zoe would be fine with it, I, I would have done it. But it was really, really weird to look down I mean, it'd be, it'd be one thing if it had been like a black lab, right? Or some other breed, but it, it was, and, it, and Monty, I asked her what kind of dog it was and she said Springer Spaniel, but he didn't quite look like a English Springer Spaniel. And I think there's such a thing as an American Springer Spaniel, but he looked enough, he had the same coloring as, as Pippa. So like, you know, your brain having looked at your own dog 12 trillion times in these, these exact kind of situations, your brain just wants to say it's your dog until you realize, no, this dog's taller and a little skinnier than my dog. It's, it's not my dog. And anyway, it was a very strange moment and I thought I was going to get a nosebleed or something. Anyway, 
that out of the way. Uh, if I put it in the canine update tomorrow, um, you know, apologies for repeating myself. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frames. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Well, we're going to record the dispatch podcast tomorrow morning and it's going to be heavy on the politics stuff. So I'll go light on the punditry here. But, um, you know, Nikki Haley gave this big speech this week where she said she's staying in the race at least until Trump gets the requisite delegates to get the nomination. Um, I am, you know, I have my biases. I like Nikki Haley. My wife worked for Nikki Haley. I have no, she has no professional relationship with her right now at all. There's nothing like that going on. That's all the disclosure I need to do. I have my disagreements with Nikki Haley too, but she represents a kind of Republican party that I would like to see back in the saddle. She represents a kind of foreign policy that I am much more sympathetic to. She's not Donald Trump, which is a huge strike in her favor. Obviously, I would much prefer her to be the nominee for the Republican party think that's very unlikely at this point. I think it's unlikely that even if Donald Trump were to somehow drop out for some reason or other, act of God or law or whatever, I still kind of feel the GOP is so Trumpified at this point that the RNC would do whatever it could to change the rules to not make her the nominee. 
but maybe not. I just, I, I just don't think that even if she's the last one left standing, it'll automatically be a cakewalk for her to get the nomination, even if Trump got out of the way and Trump's not getting out of the way and Trump's going to win South Carolina and he's going to win the nomination unless all of these very clear trends go cattywampus in some unforeseeable way right now, or at least unforeseen. But I think it's just an embarrassment. You know, there's this new poll. Obviously, it's just one poll, whatever, but it has her beating Biden by like 12 points or something like that. I think it is pretty obvious that Nikki Haley would have a better chance of beating Joe Biden. I think it's outrageous that Laura Trump, who's being put in as the co-chair of the RNC, is saying essentially that all of the resources of the RNC will go to a single thing, helping Donald Trump, which I don't think you have to be a hard-bitten cynic to assume that means that at least it's likely that they're going to ask the Republican Party to pay for Trump's legal woes. And that money, those resources, will not be going to House candidates or Senate candidates or or just making the Republican Party a less idiotic, less cult of personality party. Um, but so even though I think there's a real Mr. Smith goes to Washington kind of feel to what Nikki is doing, where, you know, she's just sort of doing this rolling campaign <laughs> kind of one person filibuster to make a point, even if she goes down flying, you know, it goes down in flames. Um, I'm still glad she's doing it. And I think this is sort of, uh, there are a lot of reasons why I'm glad she's doing it. But the point I want to make is that I'll back up. I think I've talked about this a lot. One of the worst things in our politics is the catastrophization. This idea, you know, in 2016, if Hillary Clinton's elected, it'll be the end of America. This idea in 2020 that a lot of Democrats put forward that if Donald Trump is elected, it'll be the, it'll be the end of America. We're now getting this. Donald Trump will obviously be Hitler stuff. And as you know, I don't dismiss a lot of these, you know, he's a threat to democracy and he'll do serious damage to America arguments. I think there's a lot of merit to him. But I do think America could survive four more years of Donald Trump. I think it would be ugly. I think it would do profound damage to all sorts of institutions. I think there will be violence no matter what um, in the run-up to or aftermath of this election, whoever wins. I also think Biden is just unfit just in terms of his age and his mental capacity and his cognitive abilities and his energy to serve another four years. But I don't think if Joe Biden is elected, it'll be the end of America. And I don't think if, if Donald Trump is elected, it'll be the end of America. But when you tell people that it's this or death, right, that, you know, you have to either, it's, it's sort of like, you know, Caesar telling his troops, we either win or we die, right? Game of Thrones, win or die. Um, burn your ships, Every, you give people permission to do whatever they think necessary, any means necessary to win. And it also gives people permission to overlook really important things because you just, it's this popular front mentality that reduces everything to this binary thing. And so you can't care about Trump's legal problems. You can't care about Trump's character problems. You can't care about his corruption, because if Joe Biden is elected, it'll be the end of America, right? And it's flight 93-ism, garbage. So if I reject that, and I do, I just flatly reject it, it puts me in a position where I can say, look, you know, I would rather Nikki Haley be president than Joe Biden or Donald Trump. But if I'm thinking about the long-term good for the Republican Party, 
one of the things I think is good about what Nikki's doing, if she follows through on it, and that's a big if, um, because at the end of the day, she's a politician and she could end up, you know, endorsing Trump and throwing away a lot of credibility. I really don't think she would be his vice president and I don't think Trump would pick her, but you can't, you know, politics, as Bill Rusher always used to tell us, you know, politicians will always disappoint you because they're politicians. So I don't rule out her being, making some very cold calculated political decisions in her interest that I disagree with. I'm inclined to give her the benefit of the doubt that she won't, but who knows? That said, Donald Trump is not nearly as popular as a lot of his fans and his most ardent foes want you to believe. If you go by Iowa and New Hampshire, it's like a third of the party, a third of the people who, who vote Republican will not vote for him or do not want to vote for him. Um, and I suspect that even among the people who did vote for him, some of those people did it reluctantly, holding their nose, all that kind of stuff. But there is a hardcore group of people who absolutely love him. You know, it's a floor of like 32%, something like that, 28 to 32%. And they make the argument constantly that the party needs to be purged of the rhinos or the disloyalists or the traitors or the squishes or whatever, right? The people who aren't part of the cult. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene has said this flat out. A bunch of people have said this flat out. Um, this is the sort of Carrie Lake thing where you have to be all in for MAGA or you're not a Republican. And the thing is, is that parties are supposed to be coalitions and there is definitely a MAGA f faction. But if it's, if the Republican Party were simply MAGA, soup to nuts, full on, you know, from the election denial to, you know, Trump's feces doesn't stink, that kind of thing, um, it would never win another election again, except in some, you know, right, some red states and red districts and that kind of stuff. But it would be a rump party. And the key to being a majority party is having a majority coalition. And majority coalitions have factions within them that are at odds with each other. And so I want, at the very least, and I, I say this not because I really, you know, I'm not invested particularly in the Republican Party anymore, but I am invested in the idea that I want a right of center political party that is governed by grownups, that is run by grownups, that is, is loyal to, to sane concepts about the role of government and of public policy and, and also a lot of that squishy, you know, just sort of to public decency, decent rhetoric, decent manners, all of that kind of stuff that Trump just doesn't represent. If Nikki Haley goes through this and gets a sufficient number of votes, this is how you form factions. And so a non-Trump faction in the Republican Party, even though it's a minority, is better than not having one at all, right? Because we're not going to have, particularly if Trump gets elected, there aren't going to be a lot of checks on his behavior from his staff or his cabinet or really from the sausage-spined cowards in the House and the Senate. The only check, the only reliable check, how enabling certainly the House and the Senate is going to be is, is how robust the Haley faction is. Or we can call it the Haley faction or the anti-Trump faction or the, the Cheney-Haley faction, whatever. And I want that faction to be as big as possible. I want that faction over time to be able to retake the Republican Party. And look, 
I, I would prefer that eventually over time, the MAGA crowd just got purged from the Republican Party. But I'm enough of a pragmatist and a realist to understand that would take a long time. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, Nikki says things right now that bother me because she's a politician and she needs to sort of win over votes, win the votes from people who have voted for Trump in the past and don't want to be called stupid or bad or anti-democratic simply because they voted for Donald Trump over Joe Biden or, or Hillary Clinton. So she's going to say things to them that don't offend them as much and that I don't think are as true as what should be said about Donald Trump because she's a politician. Nonetheless, she is cultivating a sizable group of people, a group of Republican voters who can serve as a check, a counterbalancing effort, you know, counting, counterbalancing variable in the calculations of Trump to some extent, but also to, you know, senators and congressmen and governors and all the rest. I'm That is a far more magnanimous open-minded, realistic orientation towards the Trump people than the Trump people have for the Haley people, right? I mean, they just want to work on the assumption that if you're not 100% for Trump, then you shouldn't be a Republican anymore, which is just mind-bogglingly stupid as a matter of politics because the Trump coalition, again, is not anything close to an actual, it's a majority well, it's, it's definitely a plurality in the Republican Party. It might be kind of close to a majority in the Republican Party. Certainly by election, by the general election, it will be a majority. But it's not a majority of the country. Pretending that it is, is a great way to repel more voters than you attract. And so I think we have to make peace with the idea that the GOP really isn't the ideological party that it once was. It's a coalitional party. And, and co, you know, FDR had in his coalition communist Jews and blacks and segregationists in it. That's what majority coalitions have is they have people who disagree with other. Tiny minority coalitions can afford to be pure. And the fundamental analytical error of the Republicans these days is they are, by any objective matter, measure, a minority coalition that has convinced itself it's a majority coalition. And I can behave like one. And that's what's made the House of Representatives just this unbelievably dysfunctional uh, fecal festival. All right. Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, so I listened to, I apologize to the listener who first floated this point. Um, but I prefer it. I'm, I'm kind of done with this whole flagship podcast, not flagship podcast running joke. I, I agree with a lot of listeners that it sort of played itself out. Um, but there was a listener who, who said what you really should do is call, you know, advisory opinions, the very successful spinoff from the remnant. We should call that, we should say the same thing about the dispatch podcast. I'm fine with that. Anyway, I was listening to, um, not the most recent, but I think the one before it, advisory opinions on this IVF case in Alabama. And, um, I think it's, so uh, the, the basic details are these couples had frozen embryos um, being stored at, a, at an IVF clinic. Somebody got past security. I don't really know. I mean, the details of that are a little murky to me. This is just my recollection from the way Sarah described it. Someone got past security, went in the back and opened up the freezer and took these things out and like destroyed them, dropped them on the floor or something. I don't, I, I should have looked up what the actual motivation was there. I don't know. 
regardless, the owners of the embryos, the parents of the embryos, um, are sued for negligence. And there's a law in the books that says that if through ne someone's negligence or malfeasance, whatever the right legal terms are, um, if someone's negligence results in a child dying, you can sue. And apparently over time, child, the definition was expanded to fetuses, right? So like if, you know, uh, I don't know, I'm just making up a hypothetical. A cab company has faulty seatbelts and a pregnant woman loses the baby. You can sue the cab company for, you know, negligence or whatever. It's a really interesting, complicated legal and moral case. Um, oh, so anyway, the court ruled, okay, well, this is also has to apply to, I think the term was extra uterine embryos. In other words, you know, they were going to treat these embryos, the frozen embryos, as if they were in utero, even though they were not in utero. There are very good legal arguments against it. There are very good legal arguments in favor of it. Or I, I should say the legal arguments are more plausible than people, than a lot of people are claiming. And there's a lot of consequentialism out there from people who say um, the ruling is bad because of what it will do to the IVF industry. That's a good argument for public policy. And it's a good argument for the state legislature to change the laws in a way to protect the IVF industry if you were in favor of the IVF industry. I am generally in favor of IVF. We tried to do IVF um, after Lucy was born because we wanted a second kid. God had a different plan. It's one of my great regrets that we didn't have more kids. But, you know, the big, the big change, the revolutionary change in your life is from zero to one. And we're obviously extremely grateful for the one. I have lots of friends. Again, I was at National Review for over 20 years. Uh, you know, Ramesh and other people have very thoughtful, logically, philosophically, and morally consistent views about some of the problems raised by um, IVF treatments. And I have respect for those. And you could tell when you listen to the advisory opinions discussion, David has respect for those too, because he you know, came up in the, what he called the pro-life elite, you know, where the people really think through these things in an almost Thomistic way um, to get to first principles. Um, so I've, I've lots of respect for a lot of those arguments, even if I, at the end of the day, I disagree with, with some of the conclusions of them. But it seems to me that the, the way to fix this isn't on appeal in a court, it's the way, it's to write law. And the only thing where I have anything, I don't know if I have much to add on this, except that I don't think it should be a binary thing. Not that I have dogs on my mind, and I know this is an incredibly flawed analogy in a zillion different ways. But I've often been bothered by the fact that on a lot of state law, caps for, for damages for killing someone's dog or cat are usually like 500 bucks. Um, in some places, it's just, you know, I mean, you can, you can run afoul of animal cruelty laws, but if like you, through negligence, killed someone's dog or, you know, or even in some cases killed someone's dog on purpose, um, there's, just, there's not a lot of criminal, meaningful criminal penalties. And in a lot of places, it'll cost you like 500 bucks. And maybe those laws have been changed. It's entirely possible given 
you know, how much more popular dog owning has gotten in the last 20 years, but that's always bothered me. Now, I've written and talked about this kind of stuff before, and there are lots of people up there, partly as a product of their upbringing, who think 500 bucks is too much. They just think animals, you know, what's the big deal? Animals are animals. They don't have souls. They're not human beings. We shouldn't concern ourselves overly with this kind of stuff. And then there are other people, which at least emotionally I'm much closer to, maybe not entirely intellectually or, or, or rationally, but emotionally I'm much closer to the people who say, go to hell, I love my dog, you killed my dog, you should suffer, <laughs> and or at least you should pay up more than 500 bucks. The reason I bring up the analogy, which again, is flawed from a bunch of different angles, obvious angles, I, I don't, I, if you flood the comment section with, that's a stupid analogy and here's why, I'm probably going to concede most of them, because I agree. But the only reason it comes to my mind is that I don't think the penalty for intentionally destroying embryos should be homicide. Just don't, you know, um, or allowing, you know, or, or negligent manslaughter. You know, the, the moral and legal status of frozen embryos cannot be the same as those of a fully fledged human being outside the womb living on its own. And I would argue for some, in part for reasons Sarah raised, scientific and medical reasons, it's kind of problematic to treat them as fetuses because lots of embryos don't make it, lots, including the ones I spent thousands of dollars on. But my only point is, is that it, this is the only place where I think the dog analogy works, is that frozen embryos aren't a toaster. They're not a coffee pot. They're not a vase or um, a taillight. They have a higher moral status. Um, they certainly have a much greater emotional status in the hearts and souls of the parents and the hopes and dreams of having kids. And I think that is something that legislation can recognize. And I see a lot of the discussion online about this where it has to be, you know, either they, they count for nothing or they count the same as a fetus. And I think there's a lot of room in between those things that is sort of left out of the sort of dumber forms of this conversation. And you can't tell someone who has pinned their hopes for, there are all sorts of reasons why people freeze embryos, right? They could be starting out cancer treatments and this is their only chance to have out, hold out hope lit down the road um, that they'll be able to have kids. You know, there are all sorts of reasons to do it. And um, to tell these people that in effect they lost their one chance to have kids because of, of, of negligence or some worse evil intent, that can be recognized in the law. I mean, like we recognize things like you know, we, we ban dogfighting. Again, sorry, I got dogs on the brain. We ban dogfighting because it's a cultural signal about, our, about the kind of country we want to live in. There's a squirrel or something. God, this is the second time on the solo I've done this um, where I thought some small rodent was threatening me. Um, weird. My life is strange. Anyway, we ban dogfighting because it's animal cruelty, but also it's like blood sports are a thing that we've realized um, as a culture 
just have all sorts of negative consequences, send terrible signals. And it's not about the economic value of something. It's about who we are as a people and recognizing what these embryos are to people um, is something that I think the law can do with some granularity that comes, that threads, what, I don't even think it's threading a needle. I think it's a pretty wide opening between these things mean nothing and these things are, should be treated like human beings. But I do think that the law should figure out how to do that, you know, not just leave it up to judges. You know, the legislature should do its job. And beyond that, you know, there's a, this is just one of the many, 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 examples of how a lot of pro-lifers and conservatives did not do enough homework about what a post-Roe um, world would look like. Now, I don't know that, that this specific case touches on Dobbs and Roe or any of that kind of stuff, but it does touch on, but IVF does touch on a lot of stuff that has to do with reproductive health and, you know, and viability and all these kinds of things that at least as a political matter, I don't think a lot of elected Republicans are, are, are well-versed or well-prepared um, to talk about this stuff in a way that won't be really, really difficult for them politically. I know last week I talked about very briefly about the Tucker Putin stuff. Um, I hadn't seen the stupid videos that he put out, which I really are just terribly, or I hadn't watched them in full. I just saw tiny little clips, but like, I'm just embarrassed for him. You know, this, I, you know, the grocery, I mean, to me, you've all heard the points about why they're stupid, right? And um, you can go read, if you really want to get deep in the weeds on the data of it, you can read Scott Lincecum's piece uh, newsletter at the dispatch, which, you know, gets pretty deep in some, into some of it. But, you know, the, and I wrote a column that touched on, on a lot of this stuff, you know, this buying into the idea that the Moscow subway system proves that we're, that somehow Russia is in some meaningful way superior to the United States. It's, I just think it's, it's as ass achingly stupid. I think that, but the, I think the most telling and dumbest thing about the videos is where Tucker says that. And of course, he's wrong on the economics and the math, right? He's just wrong that groceries are cheaper for Russians than they are, than groceries are for Americans, right? But he says this thing where he says, it only costs 100 bucks, it costs 400 bucks in America. Um, and he says, this radicalizes me against our leaders at home. And he keeps, he keeps using this phrase lately about being radicalized against America and American leaders and, you know, American system and yada, yada, yada. And I think that's a huge tell because can talk about how your trip to a French owned, by the way, supermarket in Moscow radicalized you against the United States of America and liberal democratic capitalism. It really isn't the supermarket that did it. You just are radicalized against democracy and this stuff and you're looking for excuses. This is a terrible, terrible excuse to become, you know, sort of de facto anti-American. That's what Tucker has become. And I find it, you know, there's something weirder moving away from Tucker for a second. You know, there's something just really weird, the way in which all of these people who claim to be speaking for rural Americans, middle Americans, flyover country Americans, country music listening to Americans, real Americans, all of their complaints about 
liberals and liberalism and progressivism and, 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 and Democrats and all this all have to do with cities that they don't live in and that they heap scorn on. Now, I'm a conservative and I care a lot about cities. I live in a city. I grew up in a city. I like cities and I want liberals and Democrats to either get thrown out of office or change their ways in a lot of these big cities because they have stupid policies. I mean, that's the, my whole thing about the neocon thing from earlier, right? I want, you know, I want to change zoning laws. I want to change housing policy. Um, I want to get rid of rent control. I want, you know, to reduce the regulation for small businesses so that they can start up more. There are lots of things that might get called me, you know, lefty that I'm open to about, you know, cities in terms of mass transit. You know, one of the big problems we have in America these days is that cities still are the engines of economic growth. They are where poor people throughout history go to make something more of their lives. And cities are becoming um, really inhospitable to poor people um, for all sorts of reasons. I would like them to be more hospitable to poor people because that's how we turn poor people into not poor, not poor people. But, you know, the, the typical, you know, Fox News boob bait stuff you'll see on sort of Fox and Friends, even though it's, it's broadcast from New York City, it's all about crapping on these cities where they then go on to sort of point out that their people don't live in. Now, I don't think that's actually true. I think there are a lot of people in cities who watch Fox News and are Republican. It's just they're outnumbered like nine to one. But there's just this weird cultural disconnect about how they're all complaining about places they don't live. Certainly Tucker doesn't live in them. And Tucker doesn't, you know, is not appealing to an urban audience. But all of his arguments about what's wrong with America have to do with places that his viewer, his stereotypical viewers, and he himself does not live in. And it's just, it's a weird sort of disconnect. Anyway, um, oh, but anyway, so the Putin interview, I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to write about this for tomorrow. Um, I kind of, I guess I'll explain myself here a little bit. You know how I've been going back to sort of first principles, sort of understanding conservatism from the ground up kind of thing. Um, rigorous personal ideological inventory about what I believe and don't believe um, in part because the word conservative is getting away from me, even though I haven't changed my fundamental views about important questions um, about, you know, where I'm still a conservative as defined 10 years ago, but like what gets called a conservative these days is very different. I'm less right wing. I think you can make the case. Um, than I was 10 years ago because what constitutes truly being right wing in this country is full of paranoid, weird, conspiratorial, you know, Taylor Swift and the Pentagon are going to sap our bodily fluids nonsense. And there's nothing conservative about that stuff. But if we're going to call that stuff right wing, then I'm not really right wing anymore. Um, I also, you know, I haven't returned to it, but, you know, I'm still dealing with thinking through the consequences of the Lewis and Lewis book about the myth of left and right. And I do think that one of the thing, well, I'll get to that in a second. Anyway, so I've been going through all the stuff. I've been like reading and writing about, you know, the origins of liberalism, the origins of the, of conservatism. I keep referencing how I've been on this revolutions of 1848 kick and all that kind of thing. I think it's important to also talk about like, what nationalism actually is and isn't, and where our conceptions of what constitutes a, a nation state um, come from. 
And so I think I'm going to do the G file tomorrow on this sort of very fundamental question about like, what's a nation state? And it'll probably be lacking in the jocularity that some people always demand from me. It will probably be closer to some sort of explainer. That's sort of where my head is at. Things could change tomorrow. Just off the top of my head, you know, you know, like there's a difference between a nation and a country. The Kurdish nation is a thing, but the Kurds don't have a country. I mean, there's that little rum Kurdistan thing, but it's not a country. You know, a country is, is what in political science is we also call a nation state, right? Because a nation is a, it's a fairly coherent, not necessarily homogeneous, but like fairly coherent group of people bound either by ethnicity, language, language is a big one. Language never gets the respect it deserves in a lot of this stuff. Custom, tradition, geography, whatever. A nation is like, is like a people, right? So the Kurds are a people and there is a historic Kurdish nation. The Ukrainians have been a nation for centuries. They've only been a country since 1991. Um, in fact, most countries are pretty new, um, which sort of gets to the idiocy of a lot of people talking about how, you know, before there was Israel, there was the country of Palestine. There's never been a country of Palestine. You can make an argument. I think it's actually wrong that there was a nation of Palestine of some kind, but to the extent that wasn't Israel, um, you wouldn't have talked that way. No one talked that way. You would talk about, you could talk about the Arab nation, which is, you know, pan pan-nationalism, you know, the Arab people, um, in the same way that you could talk about in ancient Greece, the Greek nation, but there was no Greek country until, I'd have to look it up, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking the, you know, early to mid 19th century, you know, there were Greek city-states, that kind of thing. And so anyway, there's a lot of people who talk about nations and nationalism and countries as, you know, in, ter in terms that confuse more than you know, illuminate. And to listen to Putin's nonsense garbage thoughts or to read his stuff, which I've done, I only listened to snippets of the Tucker interview, but I've read about it. And I read, a, you know, his previous manifesto about all of this stuff. Putin just simply rejects, forget like, you know, the modern understanding, the post-1945 understanding of what, what countries are or what nation states are. Forget the sort of, you know, League of Nations, Wilsonian, post-World War I understanding of what nation states are. He rejects nationalism, right? I mean, nationalism as a thing comes from like the early 1800s. And there is no definition of nationalism that has any serious co legitimacy or coherence with the intellectual history, with the political history, with history that um, says Ukrainians can't be a, a country. You know, they have the language, they, they you know, you can, you can argue about where the historic borders are. That's, you know, a thing, you know, I guess. But like Putin goes back to the 13th century, the 9th century to make this argument about how Ukraine can't be a country. The number of places that were like recognizable nation states, as we understand the term today, that existed in the 9th or 13th century is pretty close to zero. And in fact, I would argue it's zero. I mean, it gets a little complicated because city states, which are not nation states, can still be countries, right? So it gets a little complicated. But the idea that like 
the authority of the past from the 9th or 13th or really 16th or really 19th century is somehow dispositive of Putin's theory about why Ukraine can't be a country is just astoundingly stupid. I wouldn't say it's necessarily dishonest because I think he really disbelieves believes this garbage. He also seems to believe that Poland started World War II, which is, you know, that might be he believe you know, he, he believes too much of his own BS, but no one no one who knows anything about World War II thinks Poland, you know, started World War II by being unreasonable with, you know, about Danzig or whatever that garbage was. But my point is, is like all of you know, all I want to be fair. I think there are a lot of people who call themselves nationalists who don't like Putin, who are sympathetic to one extent or another with Ukraine. There are a lot of different rooms in the mansion of nationalism, historically and in present day. But there are a lot of dumb people think they are nationalists because it's a cool thing to say and think that nationalism is the real authentic form of conservatism, which is complete nonsense. I'm sorry, you know, Yoram Hazoni is utterly unpersuasive on this point. You know, the nationalists in the 1800s, which is where you get, you know, you know, really, really, you know, the late 1700s, the first nationalist movements were really the United States of America and the French revolutionaries. Um, because they introduced this idea that the nation belonged to the people rather than to the throne or some dynasty. They kind of export, the French kind of export nationalism to Germany and these other places. And um, um, anyway, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on all that, but like nationalism was not conservatism in 1800, 1850, 1900. Nationalism, you know, particularly, you know, with the French revolutionaries, with the American revolution, was was revolutionary. It was radical. It was it was you know again trying to avoid left and right, but it was um, it was it was the transgressive force against the status quo, which was the rule of altar and throne. So anyway, so nationalism was a kind of a revolutionary idea, and it took, it splintered into a whole bunch of different things. But this idea that somehow Putin is making a nationalist argument or is an avatar of of a, a coherent philosophical thing called nationalism, I just think is wrong. Imperialism, yeah. And, you know, there is a kind of nationalism that it's also imperialistic. Putin, Putin is actually a champion of the linguistic nationalism where he, you know, he thinks anybody who speaks Russian anywhere in the world is de facto Russian. But the Ukrainians, at least Western Ukrainians, don't speak Russian, or at least it's not their preferred language. And so basically by going back into, not quite antiquity, but, you know, the, <laughs> from the dark, early dark ages or whatever, you know, forward and saying that this is his rationale for why he should be able to invade, slaughter, and slaughter Ukrainians. It's not nationalist. And the people who think it is, I mean, some of them are just ignorant, but for some of them, they don't care because really what they're talking about is just sort of power worship. And there's really frustrating things that, you know, I remember after the Putin interview, a lot of, of the usual suspects, you know, Tucker fans, Putin fans were coming out and talking about how, what a mesmerizing scholar Putin is. And it turns out that if you don't know anything about history and you listen to someone who's bat guano crazy or lying or just, just completely wrong about history... 
you can sound like you're really like you're a genius because you don't know anything about how to fact check them or truth squat them or, you know, you know, it, it just rolls over you. Oh, yeah, the polls started <laughs> World War Two. Um, if you don't know anything about World War Two, he's like, oh, that's really interesting, you know. But it's garbage. Anyway, so I, I kind of feel like I want to extend my franchise about this sort of explanatory stuff and do the nationalism stuff. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. On the left and right thing, I'll just sort of close on this. I think that one of the things, my, my big takeaways that has really kind of stuck with me, and I, I, I know there's some people who are sick of this topic, and there are other people who have very strong opinions about my wrongness, I increasingly, I think that it's, it's kind of a problem. I think the, the Luai are right that it does more of a disservice than a service to talk about the left and the right because it has a lot of unintended consequences. I'm not saying I'm going to stop doing it completely, but I'm just trying to figure out how to be more careful about it because when I... When you just sort of talk about the left and certainly the way this is talked about on places like Twitter and on cable news... Is it's sort of like the nut picking thing that you know, you know, David and I have talked about a lot, where you take the worst examples of someone on the other side and you say this is representative of the entire other side. And the problem with that is just not simply that it's inaccurate, but it can also have a certain self fulfilling prophecy aspect to it, because the more you tell people that there are only two teams, you kind of enforce a group solidarity, a group, you know, sort of popular front mentality that says, well, the other team is against this. I have to be against the other team in every regard. And so therefore, I guess I should be in favor of this, even though it strikes me as, as, as a bad idea. And I think you can see this all over the place with the transgender stuff where, you know, you know, things like libs of TikTok or whatever, or end wokeness, these accounts on Twitter, they will point to what I agree are pretty horrifying examples of extremism on the transgender issue and say, this is what the left wants. But at the same time, I know a lot of people on the left who don't want that, or at least are nervous about it or skeptical of it or unsure about it. But the more you say, this is what the left wants, the problem is that two groups start to believe it, the right and the left. And it has this, this, this power to enforce this sort of one-size-fits-all thinking on both sides. I'll give you a weird example of it. Um, I did this panel, told you I was busy, at George Washington University yesterday. Frank Sesno asked me to be on it. I was on a thing with um, Spencer Cox from Utah, who I really like. I think he's just a really solid guy. And he's got this, you know, I would have once rolled my eyes a lot more at it, but this thing about... Um, disagree better where, you know, he has these sort of, you know, it's this program to sort of get people to particularly politicians to be better at disagreement, to talk to each other, to listen to each other. And he's got all, it's very Arthur Brooksian, but it's, and you know, I have a huge amount of respect for Arthur, but I agree with a lot of it as a matter of sort of generalities, even though there's just something kumbaya about it that, you know, I just, I, I haven't lost 
my initial, you know, skepticism about kumbaya type stuff. But I think he's right, you know, and this is a point I made here recently, you know, um, again, it's an Arthur Brooks point that there's nothing wrong with anger in politics. It's perfectly fine to be angry if someone raises your tax, taxes. It's perfectly fine to be angry if people treat, teach your kids things that you think are just wholly antithetical to your values. Um, it's perfectly fine to be angry about, you know, bad police policies, whether you're on the quote unquote left or the right, right? I mean, it's fine to be angry about angry or as, as Cox calls it, passion is useful in politics and you should, you know, not be ashamed of it um, or apologize for it. But, and this is the Arthur Brooksian point, what's bad is contempt. And I think that the left, right thing fuels a certain kind of contempt because what it does is, is it otherizes people, right? And there's a lot of this in Suicide of the West it says that I no longer have to engage with you in good faith. I can just simply assume you're a bad person on every issue. I don't have to deal with the best facts that you bring forward or the best arguments that you bring forward because we just know that the left is this giant homogenous blob of evil or the right is this giant homogenous blob of people. And this kind of binary thinking isn't just on the left, right thing. And this was one of my disagreements with, with, with um, the Lewis brothers is that, you know, I see it as much, if not more in the identity politics stuff. You just simply, you know, you have these people who just simply argue that, being white is either invalidating of your arguments or is, is such a privilege because of white supremacy and yada, 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 that you can dismiss any disagreement as essentially coming from in, in a form of bad faith. And to me, anatomically, intellectually, morally, it's, it's hard to distinguish describe, you know, dis described absent political context as anything other than racism, because that's how racism works. You know, I mean, there are all those jokes, which I'm not going to repeat here, you know, about what do you call Nobel Prize winning black heart surgeon, uh, you know, and it's like you reduce them to the N-word kind of thing, right? And the, this idea that like individual accomplishments can be papered over by simply attributing somebody to a certain team or a certain tribe or a certain identity. And that's the reason I bring this up is I was, so I did this thing at GW. It was an impressive program and they had these videos from some GW kids and they were impressive kids and I, I'm not trying to make fun of them or anything like that. They had interesting things to say and I agreed with some of the things that they said, but there was one very impressive uh, young woman who was, um, I gather, of Indian descent and she was talking about the problems of dealing with racism and how people want to just say that racism doesn't exist and that colorism doesn't exist and yada, yada, yada. And, um, and I'm not dismissing that stuff out of hand. I'm sure she has these experiences and there are obviously people out there who say racism doesn't exist and that colorism doesn't exist and these aren't things and blah, 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 blah. Um, but what I thought was funny was in a sort of half ha-ha, half ironic sense, was in the process of talking about her position, about how people want to negate her personal identity and her personal character by otherizing her and all this kind of stuff, which I think is very bad. 
she said she recounted this very short anecdote about how she was talking to someone and saying how she had been um, discriminated against and the person she was talking to disagreed and said, no, you weren't. I don't think you were, you know, it was a sort of like my feelings should just win this argument. It doesn't matter what your perspective kind of vibe to it. But she said, and of course the person who was telling me this was white. And so of course, who are they to tell me whether I was discriminated against? And that's sort of my point. And right? is if you just, if like the white person who said this to her could have been right. Could have been wrong. I don't know. I don't know what the actual details were. But saying that someone can't be right about these kinds of things simply because they're white is is a similar form of this homogenizing thing. It's like with the Israel stuff, you know, like it tells you something about how desperate the Israel haters are to claim that Israel is a white country, white European country. And if you've ever been to Israel, you know that this is just not true. But if you can persuade people that it's a white country in a non-white part of the world, then therefore, of course, it's a settler colonial power, that it's a usurper power, it's an oppressor power because white people don't belong there. Forget the problems with that, that top line argument. This is sort of my point about the, the sort of the, the homogenizing factor of these broad binary categories where you, you just think that if you can say people are white, You've won an argument about something, and you haven't. I mean, I mean, you might about some arguments. It depends what the argument is, but like the idea that that white a white person can't have a valid opinion, a good faith opinion, opinion based in tangible, real facts, a better argument than somebody else is to me whether it's as offensive or not in our culture is a different question. It's as wrong as making the exact same assumptions about a black person. And I think the sort of black, white or white, non-white sort of way a lot of discourse happens is very similar to the left, right thing. And so I think it's, it's important like to go after ideas rather than people. And if you can, if you have a problem with an idea and you have a good argument and facts to support it, Make the argument against the idea, but don't make, don't do this sort of, you know, tribal thing where all the people agree with this bad idea and therefore all the people who agree with this bad idea are bad people. And there's just an enormous amount of that that comes from the left-right thing that I think people should be more watchful of. Oh, and I've talked for an hour and 20 minutes. So I'm done. I'm just done. Uh, if you can subscribe to the dispatch, that would be wonderful. If you could, you know, I never, I never ask you guys to give us nice reviews or anywhere or all that stuff anymore. I just don't know how much it matters. But on the other hand, if it does matter, I look at the list of top political podcasts every month or so on, on Apple podcasts. And um, it's pretty depressing. Some of the, I mean, I'm, Remnants is always at least in the top 200. Often it's in the top 100. This has more to do with like when, when you look because, you know, the, you're boosted if you were re released recently because people are downloading it in the moment that the algorithm is working or something to that effect. But, uh, you know, the Dispatch podcast is always sort of in the top, it's always in the top 200, often in the top 100. Sometimes we're all in the top 50. Again, it depends on who the guest is and all the rest. But if you look at the ones that are in the top 25, I mean, some of them are just are pretty freaking depressing from my perspective about like what people think is serious conservative 
conversation, talk, whatever, or just serious talk at all. Um, and I'm not going to call out individual ones right now, but like, um, go look at it. Maybe you disagree with me, but like, you're not going to be shocked when I tell you it, it offends me <laughs> that, you know, like Seb Gorka will sometimes rank higher than me. Um, I should make peace with it. Again, the podcast is called Remnant for a reason, but at the same time, we're running a business here and we're trying to do a good thing in the world. So if you could give us some good, give us some stars, more important would be word of mouth. Um, and if you can help sell the dispatch to people, you know, help sell the podcast to people, you know, ask them to give it a try. Um, we really appreciate it because you guys are by far our best marketers. So I'm grateful to you all and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>